Hello, this is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. As our guest today, we have entomologist Aaron Fairweather. Aaron Fairweather is an entomologist and science communicator with a lifelong passion for science and insects. They've completed a BSc, MSc, and are working on a PhD on ants and agricultural systems at the University of Guelph all while delivering a few courses. They can't seem to disentangle their hobbies and passion for science, so in their free time, they like to dress up as an animal and teach about them too, or garden slash rock climb, all while looking for bugs. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. So to begin with, we normally like to ask people just, how did you get interested in science? It's like, that's one of my favorite questions, because I've just always had an incredible passion for science and just nature in general. Like go- growing up, my uh, my dad was an avid uh, marine biologist who would take us on like fishing trips and take us into the woods for hikes and all the time and stuff. And um, my parents were always very supportive of all of my little weird endeavors, trying to raise caterpillars and keep ant colonies and all kinds of things like that. So from as early on as two years old, I was looking at the small things of the world and trying to figure out what they were. And I just kind of kept with it. I kept journals about the insects I would see. I would document what they were doing and uh, try and draw them and that kind of thing. And uh, when I got into high school, I started working and volunteering at the local museum. And then it just kind of cascaded from there. I kind of got more opportunities as I went along, got to the University of Guelph and just kept going into entomology. Wonderful. I actually know a little bit about the University of Guelph because I did my BA and SC at McGill. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I I know like two things about Guelph. One is this guy that I dated when I was an undergrad told me that Guelph has a lot of lesbians. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's true either. <laughs> <laughs> and then also I am the first publication out of my MS is going to be with the Canadian Journal of Orthropod Identification. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people involved with that are also at Guelph. Yeah. Yeah. One of the main editors, um, Stephen Marshall, was the person I did my first insect taxonomy course with. And like, he's just incredible. It's like hearing that you know a celebrity. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I like, and it's so funny because Stephen Marshall was one of the reasons why I chose Guelph. He wrote the textbook Insects and Natural Diversity and History in Eastern. Oh, you don't got to tell me twice. Oh, yeah. And so I got that book when I was in high school and I just, I read through it again and again and again. And I looked up where this guy taught and it was the University of Guelph. I was like, that's where I'm going. Aaron, can you actually tell us more about your current research? Yeah. So I'm working with ants and agricultural systems in Southern Ontario. So looking at their diversity, their ecology, and then I want to use one of the most common species that we have here, Lazius neonager, as a model organism for soil ecotoxicology research. So actually try and raise them in the lab, see what the conditions are for them, and then try and set a certain set of parameters or conditions or uh, endpoints that I can use for testing certain pesticides. And that'll be my last part is actually testing that model um, for agricultural uh, bioassays. Well, can you tell us more about <clears throat> this specific species? Yeah. So Lazius neonager is also known as the labor day ant. It's a really cool species that it's probably the most common like lawn 
ant you'll find. Uh, it usually builds those tiny, tiny mounds that you see on lawns all across North America. It has one day, usually around Labor Day, which is why it's called a Labor Day, where it has its massive nuptial flight. It's just, if you go outside on the right day, there's literally millions of wing uh, queens to be and males flying around uh, establishing new colonies. It's so, so cool. So what distinguishes this ant from all the other ants? One distinguishing character is just that it's very small. One of the first things that we look at when we're looking at different ant species is just their kind of size category. We can easily get them down uh, based on how big they are. And then from that size, we look at one character called the pedial, and it's also known as the wasp waist. So whenever you see a wasp or a bee, you know there's that constricted segment before its kind of butt area. That constricted segment in ants can either be one or two segments. In the case of Laziest Neonander, it has one segment there. From there, there's just like kind of some minute characters that identifies it as Laziest, that one genus. Um, we call it like the, the shelf before the pedial. It has a very flat back kind of, um, and that's kind of what we use to identify it down to that species. Behaviorally, do they have any particularly interesting traits? I I could go on forever about why ants in general have just amazing traits, but, and a lot of common species of ants have really cool like gardening and almost like architectural behaviors and Laziest new niger is no exception. They tend to root, root feeding aphids. So you'll see them often around the roots of plants and they'll be uh, harvesting aphids that are feeding on the plants, uh, xylem and phloem, where they get these nice sugars that the ants feed off of. So they're almost like ant cattle. Ants, these ants will also, when they're nesting in the root systems of the plant, they will stimulate the growth of those roots and actually funnel nutrients to increase the amount of the growth rate of the plant to increase the amount of nutrients that the aphids can get. And it kind of is a positive feedback loop on both ends. The plants benefit and the ants benefit and the aphids don't overwhelm the plant when they're present. It's really, really a really cool balancing act. Yeah. That sounds like, you know, pretty hardcore like agriculture or, you know, plant and aphid husbandry. Oh yeah. This is like, and aphid husbandry, fungal gardening, um, seed growing, in ants, it goes back hundreds of millions of years. They've been doing this so long that they've got it down to a science per se. Like if we were paying attention to ants thousands of years ago, we would be way more advanced than they are, we are now because they are doing things like that, that, that kind of gardening. But then they're also doing things like aqueducts to funnel water away from the colony and then store it in soil at the base of the, the colony so they can kind of use it as a faucet and as a, a saving grace to clear them from floods and all kinds of things. That's pretty, it's amazing looking at ants. Normally when people might think about insects of agricultural importance, they mm. usually will think, well, first they'll think of honeybees because of big honeybee spreading propaganda. Yeah. And then they might think of other pollinators and or pest species like aphids. I think it, it might be interesting to people to hear that ants are a group of agricultural importance. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, so it's kind of amazing that in North America in general and in Europe, there hasn't been very much research at all in that regards. Like if you look into the literature, there's been a few papers here and there about ant diversity on crops and then maybe looking at ants tangentially when they're present, when you're looking at pollinators and that kind of thing because they're hymenoptera. But 
not really specifically looking at ants and agricultural systems, but then as soon as you move to South America or in Asia, like there's so much research on ants as really important bio regulators and integrated pest managed uh, species being used and that kind of thing. It's like, it's so cool. Could you explain to people what integrated pest management is? Oh yeah, of course. So integrative pest management is using all the practices that are available to us and all our understanding of how crops grow to make crops grow better. So it's not just the use of pesticides, which is a part of it, but then there is correct tilling practices, correct use of uh, nitrogen and different fertilizers in crops, and then also the use of agricultural ecological practices. So uh, growing other crops with like multiple different species of crops to create a heterogeneous like system. So multiple different species that makes a more robust system. And then to add in natural predators like spiders and parasitoid wasps and beetles like ladybird beetles that feed on aphids and that kind of thing. And then using other things that are compounds in the environment that might help the production of the crops like pheromones that might attract species away from the crops and um, using buffering areas around crops to attract pollinators, all that kind of thing to support the growth of the crops outside of just what we've used traditionally by using all of the techniques that are available to us. Yeah, in South America, there's been a huge amount of research on the utility of Fidoli as these biocontrol agents able to get rid of aphids and all kinds of pest species like caterpillars and that kind of thing. There's one really great paper that says that they got rid of, when they introduced this one species of Fidoli, that they just decimated the caterpillar population on the crop. And it was like 75% reduction, which is way more than some pesticides even. It was really cool. And there was even a paper that I read really recently from uh, Japan that was talking about a case study of the utility of ants as biocontrol that was used in 304 uh, AD. So way really really early on and utility of ants and like uh, i think it was rice patties and in flowering trees to get rid of a variety of pests mostly caterpillars and it was just like it's just so cool that there's this huge history associated with it but we have just kind of lost that knowledge and haven't really used it or applied it in any real sense in recent history and ants again have fallen off this wagon of these biocontrol agents and have really been more associated with pest species, especially in North America and Europe. They are, whenever you talk to farmers or the public about ants, they're always like, oh, I want to get rid of them from my uh, home because they're either tearing apart my house or they're just a nuisance on my counters and that kind of thing. But there's just this other amazing element to them that the, that is being re-realized, I think. Mm. So integrating ants into pest management in agriculture this may seem a very, very basic question, but but how do you get the ants where you want them to be? I mean, that's a good question. It's kind of the same thing that you would do if you wanted uh, ladybird beetles to be on your crops or in your garden. You would just kind of introduce them. And then if there is space available to them, which would be just the available soil, they will take to it really quickly. Throughout my research for my PhD, particularly in my first year when I was first discovering what kind of diversity was on the crops in southern Ontario, I really quickly realized that after the nuptial flight in the fall for laziest neonager, as long as the crops weren't too disturbed or they didn't till afterwards too much, 
the they just took to the open soil really quickly and in the following spring just about every place that they had a crop or a plant coming up from the soil had a colony near it or just actually in the root system of the growing plant uh, which was just really amazing to see and really cool to document i can't wait to publish about it when you talk about you know just introducing them do you just like get a bunch capture a bunch of queens and drones and just you know put them in a box and then move the box to the field and open the box or is it more complicated than that i mean i i think that's what's been done in a lot of cases especially the introductions that have happened in uh, south american crops and that kind of thing all of the papers i've read from there have been mostly that they just get a bunch of queens that they know are mated and you can just gather them by the thousands during an nuptial flight um, and then just toss them into a field and then hope most of them take. There are a number of things that you can do for other species, particularly with laziest neonager that I work with. You could just put a bunch of divots in the ground, like pre-made holes that queens will bury into and start their own tunnels through it. I have seen a lot of success with that with my own personal colonies, like in my home. If I want them to nest in a particular spot in a terrarium or something, you can just pre-make a hole and they will take to that more than anywhere else in the terrarium. But I don't think anybody's actually done any research on that or to that extent, like what can you do to further encourage ants on your crops or in your fields or wherever you want? When you mentioned seeing them in the root systems, how do you like, how do you see that without damaging the plant too much? Well, I mean, mostly one of the things I was working with was pumpkin and they have a really big stem and the root systems often, um, you get a lot of hair roots and uh, thick roots that will break the soil a little bit. So you can actually look down through where the stem enters the ground and especially on a dry day, the soil is fairly cracked. So you can actually see down pretty well if you have a flashlight or something. So that was one of the ways that I would do it. You can also, uh, I mean, this was with the farmer's permission, but take up some of the crops um, and see just how deep the root systems go and then try and trace trails and tunnels that the ants are making around those. So with the data that you're collecting, what kind of, like what kind of methodology are you using in particular? Is it more taxonomic? Is it something else that's not as good as taxonomic? Um, So for most of my field research, it's been laying out like standard collection protocols, like a transect and then putting pitfall traps and bait traps and doing active collecting along the crops for an entire day. Um, and then once I get them back into the lab, I will do um, morphological identification, which I'm really uh, trained in. And then anything that I'm uncertain about, I do do some genetic identification. There's the Barcode of Life Institute just next door to me. So I'll toss some specimens over to them. Um, yeah, and then once I get all the colonies into the lab, I do standard bioassay uh, measurement uh, research. So looking at soil movement and the death of the organisms and that kind of thing. Could you talk more about bioassay stuff in agriculture? Because I think that may be kind of a an unknown area for a lot of people. Yeah, so... In actual field bioassays, what we would do is take a plot of area or a field or farm, depending on what we're looking at and how we're applying these experiments, that hasn't been treated by pesticides and then one that has. And then we we measure a set of endpoints. And those endpoints can be things like uh, behavioral 
So how the organisms are moving or if the organisms are changing their foraging uh, behaviors, how much they move, whether they look lethargic, or they can be um, very concrete, acute, and things like death, uh, death of workers, death of the colony itself, all that kind of thing. And so we do those as a comparison between a control and the treated group to see how the pesticides that we're applying to these fields are actually impacting non-target species. So things that we don't want to actually kill, like the aphids or the caterpillars that might be damaging the crops. We want to see what they're impacting, like the bees or the ants and that kind of thing. There's an important, like people are going to use pesticides no matter what, like they have to use them to increase food security right now. And it's our best means of defense against pest insects. And one of the goals of actually studying insecticides is to try and mitigate the damage to ecosystems as much as possible. Agriculture has never been my interest, but it is where some of the money is. And it's like kind of does have this really important niche for an ecologist and a taxonomist to want to focus on. And that's where my interest in ants and agriculture came in is like, I've just been interested in ants taxonomically and ecologically. And so I wanted to bring that to ecology, like to the agricultural sector and all of the people I've talked to at North American conferences, they're like, how did you even come up with ants and agriculture? Like nobody's thinking about that right now. It's like, I just like ants. So this is where I gravitated towards. And it just so happens that there is this really cool connection between the two. And it's pretty historical in many places of the world. I just like ants is the sort of backstory of as many entomologists as like proportionally it is the same as the number of ant species to hymenoptera as a whole yeah <laughs> your point about inter uh, insecticides actually kind of gets back to the idea of integrated pest management mm -hmm. of doing something that is more ecologically friendly and responsible mm -hmm. where a lot of people's first response to having a quote-unquote insect problem is just to try to nuke everything. Yeah. But the problem there is that if you are setting out something that kills insects in general, it's going to kill insects in general. Yeah, and I mean, there's so there's that problem. And I mean, most, I would say, just every pesticide that's pretty much on the market right now won't do that. The problem is, is if you nuke even all the insects that you're targeting, then you nuke all the ones that are not resistant and then you get resistance and then the insecticide is useless. And that's not just a problem for us, but most of the insecticides we use are based on plant compounds. So the ways that plants defend themselves anyways, and then that's going to be a problem for the plants as well down the line. Now we have a pesticide that doesn't work and a plant that can't really defend itself in the environment. And we don't want that. So we want to balance how we use the insecticide. It gives the plants a little bit of an advantage if there's an outbreak of an insect. But outside of that, we can use so many other techniques to control insects. And so that should be our goal. This actually reminds me of a point that came up in one of our conversations with Gabby, who is a conservation biologist who works primarily with large mammals in Africa. And they mentioned a time where the you know the persuading argument against killing a jackal wasn't like other oh, great it was if you kill this one the, like biologically their response is then to breed a lot more yeah and so similarly in sort of 
fixing your problem in the extremely short term, you are creating a much bigger problem in the very long term. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's kind of crazy because uh, one of my friends works on uh, rat as disease vectors in big cities. And one of the things that she found was if you do that, if you get rid of some of the population from specific areas, if you start to create islands of individuals, the disease numbers actually spike and it becomes so, so, so much worse than if you just had left it be and either trying to inoculate some of the groups or actually just treat some of the social issues surrounding like getting people in proper health or getting people in proper uh, places and that kind of thing. I mean, this kind of also brings to mind one of the things that's so great about insects in general and about entomology as a discipline, which is that I can go outside right now, look at two plants and see five insects. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, And so my ultimate point here is that entomology is really great because insects are A, ubiquitous, and B, small. And so the sort of large-scale dynamics of ecology and evolution that we often think about as being like on too large of a scale to really be able to witness directly are just ongoing in insects all the time. And it's like an incredible and beautiful thing. And there's just so much diversity that you can never and like never run out of things to learn or just see. And I think that's beautiful. Oh, it's fantastic. That would be a great ending note. Um, But we're not done yet. (laughs) (laughs) You said that you have a background in taxonomy. Yeah. So let's get a let's get a hot and and spicy opinion on um, an ongoing sort of contentious topic, which is, as we've mentioned, there are a lot of insects. Yeah. And there are many, many, many more insects in the world than anybody directly knows about. One set of numbers that gets tossed around a lot is that there are about a million described species of insects and described according to the specific Western scientific process of, you know, that legacy of taxonomic naming and that specific naming system. Mm -hmm. I like to be clear about that because there, I feel like there's often, this is not the thing that I'm going to get a hot and spicy opinion on. This is just a note that I want to throw in. A lot of times it feels like there is this underlying attitude in biological taxonomy that the way that like the very specific scientific method of naming things and describing things and our classification system is obviously the right one. And then other forms of classification and other like categorization systems are, you know, folk taxonomy or fake taxonomy. Mm. And I you know, I don't think that. I think that the way that we describe things is one way to describe things, and then there are many other equally valid but different ways to describe things. Yeah. So, okay. So then within that, you know, paradigm, one million described species of insects and estimated maybe 10 million species in the world. Yeah. And one thing that has been proposed as a way of dealing with this extreme un- work through workload of unnamed species is more like in the most extreme version um the idea of only of identifying things and naming them based only on genetic sequences right (laughs) so weigh in on that as 
as a traditional taxonomist that works at a museum, I don't like the idea. Uh, and it's mostly because growing up, I would not have gotten interested in insects if there was a barcode associated with them. Like if there was a string of numbers and letters that was just, this is a set of species. And then we generally call this group, this one name or something that kind of would like overcomplicated things, or I kind of wouldn't have been able to see like, this is what this thing is. And this is actually something that I've talked about a lot because my master's was on ant diversity and ecology and uh, between parks and clear cut areas. And it had a really heavy focus on genetics because my advisor was really interested in that and worked with the Barcard of Life Institute at Guelph. And I attended one of the Barcard of Life conferences, the bold conferences, and it came up a lot. Like one of the up and coming techniques for assessing just broad ecosystems is by taking a soup from the environment, like a set of like a malaise trap, let's say, and then blending it and putting it through a multi-sequence analysis. Like the, the thought to me of blending the things that I collected specifically to learn more about is painful. <laughs> it hurts my core. So I, I don't like the idea. I appreciate that there is a let's get it done now attitude. And I appreciate that that exists also for good reason because insects are in decline globally, like in some areas as high as like 70% as some papers have come out recently looking at. It's just, it's insane how much diversity and how much uh, abundance we're losing on a daily basis. So I appreciate that there is this, okay, let's see what exists right now on the planet as fast as possible. But I don't know if that's the right solution. I think in my mind, the so a more like a more logical solution is just if you are concerned, put the money towards it. Like, just there's such underfunding within ecology and taxonomy in general. Just put some more intrigue and interest and money behind that, and you will get those numbers up. We can use genetic sequencing to pipeline and accelerate that process. DNA doesn't just say, okay, here's the barcode. That process can also indicate, okay, this is likely to be a new species. Look at it in greater detail. Or this is likely to be something we already know about. Check the morphological characters and then move on. That does expedite the process of taxonomy, but it doesn't remove the need to know what they look like physically, you know? Yeah. I mean, my my first thought is I saw a tweet recently, several pretty high profile like old school text, North American taxonomists have died in the past year or two. Yeah. And RIP. And there was a tweet that was like a response that I saw that was like, we just don't have, you know, these old school taxa, like we're losing our old school taxonomists and we're not getting new ones. And it's like, mm. there was some implication that the problem was lack of interest. And I, I just couldn't, I was just like, there's no, there's literally no money for people to be that anymore. No, it doesn't exist because they had that job. And then they, they because they're so passionate about it, these old taxonomists, they're so passionate about it. And I feel it that they continue even past retirement. They stay at the university and they keep working. But then once they die, all of a sudden their skills are gone. The people that they trained before them are in other jobs because their job didn't exist anymore. And it really sucks because... I, especially with, I think ants are a fun example, even though it is one of those 
groups that's like everybody's interested in ants. There was a time where there was less passion for ants and there's this kind of movement, especially in recent history, where people got more interested in ants because of things like take home ant farms and stuff like that. And then recently, Ants Canada is a great example of a YouTube channel, which just got millions and millions and millions of people actually interested in not just raising ants and ant farms where it's just a bunch of workers and then they die, but actually understanding how ants work. And that interest can exist for all insects. I truly believe that. It's just it takes somebody to be able to do that. Those old taxonomists could have been that person, but they just couldn't pass it on in any real or meaningful way. Yeah, I'm aligned with you with regards to skepticism on the usefulness of just describing things only based on genetic sequences. A, mm. because methodologically, I think that's, I mean, we, I like I've done DNA extractions and yeah. sequencing. They're not foolproof. No. And then also it does get to the kind of a question of what is, what are we actually describing things for yeah. ultimately? Because I think particularly the sort of the, it is an extremely common, but it is an extreme, it is so common that it is, trite now that the backstory for entomologists is i was a kid and i was outside and i saw insects and i thought they were really cool and 30 years later here i am yeah here we are <laughs> like that's my backstory you know that's your backstory that's everybody's back like i went outside i saw bugs i thought i like those and then i just never stopped thinking that and that disconnection between like the natural historical and ecological context of an organism and then its description, like at that point, why, like, what are we doing it for? Yeah. Especially if you lose the ecology, like, yeah, there's no reason describing the organism. It's just kind of sad. It loses that wonder and discovery. And it was, it's crazy. I have stories like of going to these conferences and sitting down with new scientists and there's been a couple of people that have legitimately said like your approach of doing things like morphologically and ecologically is useless. It's outdated. There's no reason to do it anymore. We can do this so much faster and so much quicker. And it's like, but how do you not know this connection? And I appreciate that they have come up and maybe aren't as interested in the thing itself, but just in identifying it. And then once you have it identified, maybe you could find it again using just a leg or something in the environment or doing one of those scans to see if it's present. Even at that end, it's like you're not guaranteed about it. And then you just have this barcode sitting there that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And it's also, I again, methodologically, it's very, there's like no possible verification process. Like if you just have a soup from like a malaise trap and you ha don't have a previous identification based on morphological features and et cetera, et cetera, there's like no way of checking things. No, there, there's no like key specimen in a museum or something like that that you can go back to and compare characteristics or anything like that. It's just it existed and that's great. And it maybe didn't even exist because there could have been some error with the process like you yes. pointed out. It's not just the process. It's also the databases that exist like one of the problems right now with uh, one of the systems that I was using for my master's is there was a bunch of students that uploaded a huge number of specimens to the database that were just misidentified slightly, like they were sister species, but didn't quite have the right name. And now the database thinks that that is the right name. So everything that gets uploaded to it gets that name. 
and it's mm. like that's not the case so the whole database is messed up and you have to kind of rebuild it so the, yeah there's a huge number of issues it's something that has appeared recently really quickly and then it got a lot of attention so it got a lot of money and then that's where the fuel is going i think people just need to take a step back and realize that it's a tool and if we use the tool in an appropriate way it can mean really great things but if we just use that tool alone it'll cause a lot of chaos in the science that we already Before our final, final segment, I did actually want to talk. So you are a furry. I am. This is actually very exciting for us because this is not a joke. We have been saying repeatedly that we got to get a furry on the podcast. Okay. Largely because there is such a strong trans furry connection. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I don't really have a follow-up question for that except what's that about? I think furry as a community and subculture has its roots in a lot of like queer spaces, especially in the 90s. There was a pretty cool documentary that actually came out recently about like the furry fandom. And one of it, uh, the things it delved into was just that it existed in a lot of gay spaces and it was used as a means of exploring kind of like sci-fi fantasy worlds, more anthropomorphic focus, but also just used as like an escape to feel more yourself or feel more okay being yourself. And I think in recent years, it's really transformed into the space of welcoming a lot of queer communities and particularly trans communities because it allows you to express yourself or see yourself in a physical means almost that is more in line with what how you want to be or like who you are and like the persona is kind of the the best character creator right my favorite thing about video games is the the character sliders the ability to pick what you look like and who you are in video games and your persona is kind of like i get to showcase myself however i want to be and just be me both physically and personally and then be in a space that accepts me and i think that's just so wonderful I mean, none of that is surprising at all. I think it is very much one of those things of like, you may not already know that there are a lot of trans furries, but if you hear it, you're like, oh, the, I yeah. Yeah, that, that makes, makes sense, sense to me. <laughs> um, just intuitively. My other question is, so your fursona is a bird. It's kind of a couple of things, but the one that I use on that account is a bird, yeah. This is a bird. Not, a, not an insect. I know. And I get this asked of me all the time. So there's kind of two interesting elements to that. One is like insects were always the thing that I studied and I loved to learn about, but I never really wanted to be or like represent myself. I kind of wanted to like be something, somebody that was interested in kind of fun and colorful that was interested in insects and could share about them, but not like I, I don't want to be that. And then the other side of things is I have tried to make an insect sona like repeatedly. And I have multiple documents laid out of like the details. And I've actually commissioned artists to do this and friends. There's always, I'm cursed. There has been always something that has come up where they've had to cancel the commission. It's, I've done it five times now, five times. That's a sign of something. I, yeah. I do actually, one of my most treasured memories is one year for Montreal Comic-Con, I dressed up, not well, but I had a mantis costume and I had a wasp costume. That's cool. And they included like full headpieces, like as the wasp, 
it was i made it, it was very low tech but i made it out of like a cardboard base and it was one of my favorite wasps vespa crabro which is the european hornet and i was just walking like artist alley and there was a, a booth for an upcoming furry convention and the woman who was tending the booth looked at me considered me for a second walked out into like the aisle just handed me the card for the convention and then walked back to the booth. That's so good. And I don't know if I actually still have that, but I had that card for years because it was so, I like treasured that memory because I always say to people, I'm like not a furry, but it's not anything against furries. It's just that I, the way this like specific furry style of anthropomorphication, right. I think often doesn't work great for insects. Yeah. And so there's not like an established, like tradition that I could fit into. Yeah. And it's, it, it's kind of funny because I've noticed that there's a big genesis recently in people actually picking insect sonas more. And I think more artists are comfortable like drawing them in different ways and more unique ways. So I've seen a lot of artists picking it up. And then just through my account and like getting more kind of notoriety as like a furry entomologist, I've got a lot of artists that are interested in drawing insects and insect sonas and that kind of thing following me. And it's just, there is a, like, there's a sub 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 culture part of furry that is really interested in insects and they're kind of amazing. And more and more like fursuits are coming out that are like insect suits and just beautiful. Oh, like there's one that was made recently of a bumblebee that is just gorgeous. I love seeing it. There's so many good ones. And there are a lot of cutesy kind of like insect uh, suits, but I'm 100% certain that in the coming years, you're going to see some really, like really cool and unique suits coming out too. Yeah. So I am not a furry, but my wife is really into cosplay. So I'm excited. And, you know, she has said on record, you know, she's not a furry either, but she's very appreciative of the community because a lot of the really cool cosplay techniques have come out of the furry community. So I'm going to be very interested to see what this leads to. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. The technology that's coming out right now with like people exploring more fursuit makers getting like more of a following and more like resources to be able to put into creating new and unique things. It's just so cool. There was one creator that I saw recently that actually had a huge like puppeteering wire frame put together for their head and then it connected to their fingers so they could make different expressions and stuff with their uh, hands and then it expresses on the face. And it was just absolutely amazing. And it was very macabre and like, oh, like a kind of one of those like werewolf, like old werewolf movies you would imagine, very like visceral. And then the on the technology front with like, uh, I don't know if you know protogen characters, but they're like technology-based kind of anthropomorphic characters that have a visor that is just a computer screen that can portray different expressions and that kind of thing. And people are doing so many amazing things with that, like buttons in the fingers that you can do all kinds of cool things with. One recently made it so you could play Doom with like, a, like I, I think it was like, you grab their hands and if you move the hands around, like it'll move the character around on the screen in like a con wow. space. It was so, yeah, it was so, so, so cool. And like all kinds of things like that. It's just so amazing. I mean, I think the things that I know about furries generally make me like furries a lot. Like a, there are a lot of gay furries. Yeah. There are a lot of trans furries. They keep a lot of independent artists basically afloat through oh, commissions. Yeah. And then also just the extreme purely, create like people doing these things not because it's going to make them any money but just so that they can do something cool mm -hmm. and share it with people yeah 
Yeah, exactly. And I mean, one of the things that like in my introduction is like connecting the furry fandom with my uh, science communication stuff is I love doing little videos and finding new ways to use the things that I'm commissioning or creating in the fandom to like connect that with science communication. And because of the pandemic, one of the things that has exploded in the furry world is like VR chat and making these really elaborate VR models and doing like full body tracking. And I've gotten really into it. And so I've been doing a series of little like identification videos for people in VR chat, talking about the insect and or insects around them or just arthropods in general. And it's been doing really well. Like I've gotten a lot of positive reception on all the platforms I've posted it to. And it's been a lot of fun. Like it's just really cool to see yourself as your character and then talking about the thing you're so passionate about. final part of our show is we ask people uh, to weigh in on one of a collection of questions. Yeah. And I believe you selected that you would like to talk about. Are there any medical transition technologies that you wish existed? So many. <laughs> and as I said, like in my message, you're asking like a transferee about this question. <laughs> and it's like, I just wish that there was a technology that existed that you could do the video game character slider thing, but in real life, like you could go into a room like in front of a mirror and just do that slider, look at yourself almost in a digital sense. And then maybe you take like a pill of nanobots, you sleep it off. And then in the morning you have those features because it's just like the, these bots have rearranged your physical structure in any kind of way. And on a very serious note, like I wish that kind of technology existed physically to be the gender that you want to express. And that can be physically in a number of ways. But like very fantasy focused, like I think that would be so cool to do just through technology and through like nanobots <laughs> and all of this kind of thing. Oh, it'd be beautiful. Well, I do actually wonder if in the future, body mod technology, like both the technology itself and sort of cultural acceptance of it will get to a point where if you wanted to have like honking big tusks yeah. you could and then also like go to work as you know a volleyball coach yeah well i mean it's kind of getting into like the cyberpunk kind of aesthetic where you're in a world and it's just easy and acceptable to get kind of any body mod that you can imagine and i i mean i think it won't exist probably to that extreme but i think it will exist at some point you bringing it back to the vr chat kind of thing you have this situation where you can see yourself so visually moving as the way you want to see yourself. And that's not even just me as a furry with a furry avatar, but in any kind of body you want to see yourself and you can see yourself in the move, like in the mirror and technologies at the point where you can move fingers around and express and it just tra can track your lips and your eyes and everything. And it, it does give you that physical sense and that physical satisfaction. So I don't think it's without reason that you could like, advance on that to the point where you get almost haptic, where you can get that sensory input into yourself in the real world, but then also start to translate that into very physical sense. So you have these features that you can then implant in different ways. Once you get haptic senses put in place, you can start to build limbs or build tails and ears and whatever else, right? This does actually remind me of, we recently had on Robin Aguilar, who 
is a genomics researcher and their answer to this question was a lot about like having tools to be better able to visualize like how you will change over a period of time on hormones mm -hmm. and so the the thing that you've said now about VR and about being able to see yourself, I think, I wonder if that is being used in that way for a lot of trans people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I imagine so. Like, I mean, I've experienced that too, getting to put on an avatar in a physical way that I want to express at some point, or like would like to look, see myself surgically or whatever, like that, that exists certainly to that extent. And then I think, on that front of actually seeing yourself, there's probably going to be a point where you could go into virtually like a virtual setting with a doctor and see yourself in a mirror and they can adjust certain proportions of yourself or features of yourself that are like, this is what this would look like in general based on the medical practices we have today. And these are within like limits or there's a maximum and a minimum, like you're not necessarily going to look exactly like this, but in general, this is what you might look like. There was actually something really cool published recently on this kind of front of some medical transition technology, which was scientists are just learning how to program specific cells to turn into something else based on electrical signals. There was a, I forget the exact details of the paper. I'll try and find it afterwards, but it was looking at a specific set of rat cells that they adjusted the voltage gated channels, protein channels within their cells using like electrographs. And when they give it, gave them specific signals, they actually started to transition into new types of cells. And it was this whole idea that the language of the body could potentially be really focused around these electric gradients and these electric signalings. And this is true for zygotes actually starting to uh, differentiate into different parts of the body that we, through um, electro scanning, we've been able to see that they communicate with one another about what you're going to turn into based on electrical impulses. So whether you could actually start to stimulate that using somebody sticking an electrode in you, it's not that simple, but could be similar to that technology at some point would be incredible. Man, bodies. Bodies. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I would think of is <clears throat> if in a future you could be like a bird person all the time, do you think you'd want to? It's a good question. I don't know about bird person specifically. I'd probably spend a lot of time thinking about what I wanted to be exactly or what I wanted to look like exactly. I think there would be features of animal, like animalistic features that I would like, like maybe different kinds of pupils or my nails might be different or like maybe having some kind of tail or something like that. I don't know if I would, would want to fully become something else, but I think I would want, if it was easy, <laughs> easy quote unquote to do, I would, I would definitely look into it seriously. Yeah. Well, cause another thing that occurs to me and I have a new answer to this question now, is less about medical technology itself and more about making it so that prosthetic stuff can interact more with the body so that it doesn't feel like a prosthetic. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would be, I mean, that kind of technology is already starting to exist and it's so valuable. And so I'm thinking about like, if you are a furry, for instance, and you have a fursona, you maybe don't want to be like a tiger person 100% of the time, yeah. but there would probably be an appeal to, I can put on my fursuit and I can actually feel like I'm a tiger person 
and then I can like go home and hang out and not be a tiger person anymore. Oh, yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Like if that kind of thing existed where it felt more like the fur was your skin and it was more kind of either skin tight or just like it altered your physical self to feel more like whatever you were portraying. It just, people go wild for that. I can guarantee you that that funding that furries are putting towards like independent artists would immediately just like all go towards that and it would get a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. We just need like the mysterious, like millionaire furries to oh. bankroll everybody on this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's existing. Like there are a couple of fairly wealthy furries that I have seen on my feed. I don't follow them directly, but like are just constantly putting money into the artists that are putting in for new like protogen technologies and like, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's cool to see the support that people get. God, I hope I'm just thinking about like in, you know, our cyberpunk dystopia future when it gets to be more aesthetically cyberpunk <laughs> instead of just like <laughs> politically cyberpunk. Know, yeah. <laughs> politically cyberpunk. The, the great saviors of humankind will at least partially be the furries. Oh, I, that is my dream as well. I'm, I'm trying to put myself out there to be the entomological furry savior. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Live your life like the furry savior that you want to see in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron, you've been a fantastic guest. Very excited to get another entomologist on. Okay, so Aaron, if people want to find out more about you or your research or your science communication, where should they look? Uh, you can find me on most social media at Entobird, E-N-T-O-B-I-R-D. You can also find me in my science account at Insect Aaron. Fantastic. Um, I am on Twitter at Cockroach Arles. I am on Twitter at Spacermace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. The show is on Twitter at A-S-A-B-Pod. or at our website where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode, asabpodcast.com. And until next time, keep on sciencing.